listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We're so excited. Tonight, we have Dr. David Crabtree joining us, and we are going to talk all about pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis in patients with substance use disorders. And Paula is going to introduce Dr. Crabtree to us, and then we're going to get started. All right. Yeah, we're once again, we have an amazing guest, and I'm super proud to introduce Dr. Crabtree. He he comes from one of the programs that I was at, so really uh, pleased to be associated with him, and we're delighted to have him as a guest on our show today. So Dr. Crabtree attended East Tennessee State University for undergrad and medical school. He graduated in the top 10% of his medical school class and with AO. Honors. After medical school, Dr. Crabtree went on to complete an internship in psychiatry and a residency in preventative medicine at the University of California, San Diego, as well as an MPH in epidemiology from San Diego State University. He then completed an addiction medicine fellowship at the University of Utah. Shout out. <laughs> After completing training, Dr. Crabtree practiced with the SoCal Permanente Medical Group, which is a Kaiser group in Los Angeles. And more recently, he's been living in San Diego, working in private practice in telemedicine. And he's been prescribing HIV, PrEP, and PEP since 2016. And this is why we invited uh, Dr. Crabtree to be our guest, because I know he's been deep into this world for a really long time, and I know he's passionate about it. And, you know, he's he's my, whenever I think of an expert or someone I have to ask questions, um, I always think of David. And David, you didn't even say anything about your dog in your bio. I'm very <laughs> disappointed. You better introduce your dog. Yes, we all, we all need to know Queen Marlowe. She's over here on the bed, making sure that I'm, you know, given a good podcast here. Without her, you know, I, I don't know if I would have got through residency and fellowship and, and everything. She's definitely been the, the joy of it, for sure. Oh, awesome. Well, great. Well, we're really excited to talk to you. I think there's so many of us who work in the field of addiction, um, whether it's substance use, active users, addiction medicine, recovery treatment, behavioral health, who, who know we should be prescribing more PrEP and certainly have the rapid capability to provide PEP and we're not doing it as much as we should. And there are very clear guidelines out there on what we should do and how we should do it. And so I think personally want to be much better at this. And so we're glad to talk to you about the history and what to do and how to do it and the challenges and the barriers and how to overcome them. So let's just go for it. Again, thank you guys for having me. And I'm, I'm super excited to talk about this topic of HIV prevention because what? We we first noted uh, HIV in 1981 and here 40 years or so going on uh, and we've not quite eradicated HIV, right? However, we've made tremendous, tremendous progress and, um, you know, what it means to have HIV in 1981 doesn't mean what it means today in 2022 to have HIV, sort of. Yes, we have medications. Yes, we have great testing we still have and, and cannot ignore, you know, disparities in geography, race, sexual minority status, insurance coverage. And then of course, HIV disease 
associated stigma, shame, and guilt. Let's dive into some some of the history here uh, before we get further into you know actually what prep and pep are and and kind of how to approach uh, you know testing and prescribing and everything. So, as I said, you know HIV first came in in 1981, where in the United States, 40 percent of all cases that year, of which there were 337, 40% ended in death by the end of that year. By the end of the decade in 1989, there were 100,000 cases. Five years later, in about 1995, 500,000 cases. And in 2007, we were over 500,000 deaths. And to date, more than 700,000 people have died from HIV disease or AIDS in the United States. Now, in 1984, the CDC issued uh, a MMWR report that essentially said, stop using drugs by intravenous route in order to avoid HIV acquisition. Four years later, in 1988, the first needle exchange program came to be in Tacoma, Washington. Now, 10 years later, In 1998, the HHS secretary determined that needle exchange programs do not encourage the use of illegal drugs, but the Clinton administration uh, would not lift the ban on using federal funds for such programs. Such a ban exists to today. Which is so crazy. Can I just say that? And it has to change. It has to change immediately. It's such a dichotomy because the government now completely supports SSPs. They, They do not cause a, a rise in illegal drug use. They help people, you know, from from the standpoint of exchanging uh, clean supplies, of course, but what else do these programs offer typically, right? Other services, connection to treatment, right? Condoms, education, all sorts of other prevention interventions are desperately needed if, if we're really going to work towards this uh, ending of the HIV epidemic. Now, approaching 10 years with the epidemic in 1990, Congress passed the ADA, Americans with Disability Act, giving some protections to persons uh, who who living with HIV. It was not until March of 87, so you know, five or six years into the HIV epidemic, that the first drug became available, and that was AZT. Though now to present day, we really have an arsenal of drugs that are effective and safe. In the early to mid 90s, about 1994, AIDS illness was the number one cause of death for all men and women ages 25 to 44 in this country. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That's no wonder why there's a huge amount of fear around. And so then just a couple years later, thankfully, we saw the entrance of heart, highly active antiretroviral treatment, after which, you know, we, we saw death rates start to to decline. Let's uh, kind of advance into 2010, where we have the the IPREX study in the New England Journal, which was really the first study on PrEP, which a couple years later led to the FDA approval of Truvada for PrEP. So this was the the first pre-exposure prophylaxis approved. Now, there's also a few other studies to take, you know, quick note of, that is including the, the Partners PrEP study, TDF2 study, which uh, both of those kind of looked at HIV negative people who may be exposed to the virus through heterosexual sex and HIV negative persons exposed to an HIV positive person on treatment with an undetectable viral load. It was shown that there was no 
HIV acquisition. So this is leading into, you know, the partner study leading into the concept of U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. Then in 2015, we had the hyper-gay trial, which was looking at PrEP on demand. And then late last year, we uh, got cabotegravir or um, apertude for injectable long-acting PrEP. So here in 2022, uh, we have safe and effective meds to treat the disease, but we also have medications to prevent the disease. Just prior to the pandemic in 2019, there were about 35,000 incident uh, HIV infections in the country. And of those you know, 35,000 infections, the overwhelming majority, around 80% of them were, um, were in males. So about 20% in females. And just you know, some other quick related stats here before we shift into talking about, you know, really what HIV prevention is, what PrEP is, what PEP is, is to take note that about 1.1 million Americans currently live with HIV. About 56% of them are HIV viral load suppressed. But, and this is important, about one in eight or about 12% of those with HIV do not know they have it. Wow. Even still, that's that's interesting. Even still, yeah. And and also, depending on your source, anywhere from a fourth to a third of, let's say, qualifying patients for PrEP are actually getting PrEP. Now, that number is so minuscule, uh, or not compared, but if we're going to consider, let's say, uh, persons who are injecting drugs, less than 1%. And, and this is even when considering those who may have commercial insurance coverage. Wow. And I mean, I think you're going to talk about that, but this is, this is it. It's like, why is it so? It's so amazing. We have these medications and why is such an abominably low number? Yeah, right, right. Let's talk about HIV prevention, an umbrella, right? And let's put everything under that umbrella. Well, as alluded to already, PrEP, that's a HIV prevention strategy. PEP, post-exposure, that's a strategy. Needle exchanges, safe uh, syringe programs are, are examples. Condom use. Also this TASP. What is TASP? Treatment as prevention. Well, as I alluded to a moment ago in, in some of the studies, the concept of an HIV negative person being engaged with an HIV positive person who is on medication and is virally suppressed cannot transmit HIV sexually, the U equals U. And so that is a, a component of prevention. Let's talk about PrEP in detail, right? What exactly is PrEP? Well, the first one, right, the first uh, medication that was approved was, at the time, brand name Truvada, Mtricitabine and Tenofovir combo together in one tablet, now, as of a few years ago, we, we do have a generic equivalent. Also, within a, the last couple of years or so, we've, we've got a new option, which is brand name Descovy or Mtricitabine in combination with Tenofovir of a different, we'll say, chemical structure. And that Descovy compared to Truvada, we think of as a little gentler on, say, kidney function. And then our third option the mo most recent that's approved is the cabotegravir, which is the injectable uh, apertude. So these medications collectively are approved to prevent HIV 
in adults and adolescents who weigh at least 77 pounds. So it's not so much about age, it's about weight. And um, PrEP, as Truvada, is recommended to prevent HIV among all people at risk through sex or injection drug use, whereas Discovy is approved to to prevent HIV among those at risk through sex, excluding receptive vaginal sex, right? So if you have a vagina, you're not really suited for Discovy. It was not really even studied in that population. Injectable cabotegravir uh, is recommended, right? HIV prevention, all people at risk through sex, and in, in the context of maybe somebody who's having problems taking a, a daily oral medication or who may prefer to get a shot every two months instead of right daily medicine, or maybe they do have serious kidney disease, in which case, you know, you'd want to select uh, cabotegravir. I have a question, David. So Discovy, is it just, so is it, can we assume that class effect that it's effective for people with a vagina? It just hasn't been studied as such? That, or should a, we should we veer towards Truvada brand name for person people who have a vagina? That's a that's a really great question. It takes about a full seven days for Truvada to reach you know high concentrations in rectal tissue, and and the recommendation as it relates to building up the concentration of medication in um, in vaginal tissue as well as those in who are in the injection drug use category. We say three weeks, 21, about 21 days before the drug will reach a sufficiently high, you know, protective level would err. This is just me. I would err cautiously. At, you know, if, if it has not been studied, I don't know if I would use it. I would probably go towards, you know, Truvada or Cabotegravir. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Cause those have both been studied. Right. And we do have a generic option for Truvada. So, you know, the studies, they often exclude injection drug users. There's only one study that I know of, and that was out of Thailand in about 2013. And it only looked at tenofovir, but it did, you know, reveal a protective effect. The CDC did ultimately include uh, Truvada in its uh, recommendation for PrEP for injection drug users. So the, you know, the estimated protective effect of the tenofovir in that study, again, just in injection drug users was, you know, depending on your source, it, it may approach about 80%. Whereas, you know, Truvada in the uh, initial trial that came out in, in 2010 gave a little bit of, let's say, confusing numbers because, right, so on first glance, you might see that it was 40-some percent effective, but that's among all participants. And there were a lot of participants who did not have the medication detected. When comparing those with detectable Truvada levels versus those without it, there was about a 13-fold decrease in HIV risk. And this correlated out to be a 92 to 95% relative risk reduction. The point being, you taking your medication and being consistent with it matters. Now, that was coming out in 2010, right? But if we think about the hypergay trial, where we're looking at PrEP on demand, what came from that is what we know now, you know, as, as 2-1-1 dosing. Now, importantly, neither the FDA nor the CDC recommend 2-1-1 dosing. Okay, can you tell us, yeah. tell everybody what 2-1-1 dosing is and what PrEP on demand is? For patients who may, let's say, have more infrequent exposure or activity and, and therefore, you know, HIV risk, there, there may be 
this on-demand approach or on-demand strategy such that if you can time your dose of this 2-1-1 prep to your, let's say, um, you know, sexual exposure, potentially, then you may avert HIV that way. Now, specifically, doing 2-1-1 involves you taking two tablets of Truvada two hours to 24 hours before or on the day of, of, of the anticipated exposure. And then you take, right, one, one, one tablet 24 hours after the exposure, and then one more tablet the next day, right? So 48 hours after the exposure. Yeah, no, thanks for explaining that. That's really good to know. Because I have to say that when I propose PrEP to my folks, and mostly I have folks who inject drugs as my population that I'm concerned about, or for men who have sex with men, I'd say would be the other main category. They perceive their risk as quite low because their high-risk encounters are rare. So that that seems like, even though it's not FDA-approved, sounds like a really good compromise yep. and harm reduction approach as opposed to getting people to buy into a daily dose or even every two-month injectable for something they don't perceive as being highly risky for them. Yep. Uh, I, I 100% agree. You know, I've had discussions with patients and, and they may say something like that. You know, I'm, I don't identify as high risk, I, but, but I do want to have it on hand. But as long as you, I think, have good counseling for your patient, then, then you could potentially do that. As long as, you know, you, you make clear that your patient understands kind of that strategy versus a once, a, or once every two months injectable or, you know, a daily dose of a, a medication. So let me just go through kind of the, the categories of, let's say, groups of patients that we look at as high risk and in needing for, for PrEP. So, right, men who have sex with men and have one of the following. They are with an HIV positive partner inconsistent use of condoms, and history of a STI within the last six months. Similarly, consider heterosexually active women and men with those same you know, risk factors, right? HIV positive partner, inconsistent condom use, uh, history of STIs. And then persons who inject drugs and who have one, one or more of the following, they share something, right? Needles, uh, other tools, as well as risk of sexual acquisition. That is a a feature that is included for those who inject drugs. Now, also, um, those who may engage in commercial sex work or transactional sex work, uh, as well as transgender men and women, in particular, transgender women are at high risk of HIV acquisition. The CDC estimates that about one in four transgender women are living with HIV. And that's a broad, that's just a broad recommendation. Transgender women are eligible for PrEP. Yes. Further, it's estimated that over half of black transgender women are living with HIV. 56%. That is just terrible. I mean, we need to stop for a minute and acknowledge that is a really disgusting statistic. We should be ashamed of ourselves that that exists. 50%. Yeah, that's horrible. I have, I have, uh, I have other bad news. <laughs> oh, it's um, so depressing. Some research shows reductions in the drug levels when used in transgender women if they're on feminizing hormones. Oh no! You know, maybe, maybe there's some sort of interaction there. I mean, I don't know uh, that answer, but, but it does, you know, come from the CDC and, and UCSF that you may use two one one prep. In, with caution. So do we know if that same effect exists in cis women who are on hormone replacement therapy? Or do we just not know that? I, I didn't come across anything that said that. 
But, you know, I think the, the thinking would be that it would. Yeah, because estrogen is a notorious inducer of other medications, right? So maybe that's why. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure on that. But it was very interesting that at least the data, you know, shows with the transgender women that having those feminizing hormones may impact drug levels. So let's talk more about IV drug users for a moment before I go on to talking more about PrEP, say labs, and then PEP. I did have that question, David. Can you just tell us, so Truvada is the one that they are saying was the only one really studied on injection drug users. Um, Good question. So specifically it was tenofovir only. Okay. And so from my reading, you know, the CDC kind of, they did not, it was, there was no prep combo medicine studied in injection drug users. So the thinking was, right, we got one tenofovir it makes sense to include that in the recommendations. And so that's the only one that has that uh, included in the recommendations. And they're only an injection drug user. Your first, your choice is Travada, or would you consider Descovy or would you consider the injectable or you're not? Cause it really, you know, yeah. Data is not there. What are, what are our options? at Here, that point? Here's what I would do. I would go with Truvada, but if there's a reason to go to Discovy, impaired kidney function, as an example, maybe consider it. Definitely would consider cabotegravir, right? We know that injection drug users lack secure housing, stable housing, as an example. And Absolutely. Very, yeah. very chaotic, hectic lives. And so it makes, I think, a strong argument for someone to be on a once every two month injectable uh, HIV preventive. <laughs> But um, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so globally, one fifth, 20% of all injection drug users are HIV positive. That's crazy. 20%. Right. And, and do we, okay, well, this, this could be a total rabbit hole, but are most of them located in a certain geographic area in the, in the world? So, so great question. I think there are certain geographic hotspots and especially for IV drug use. When I was in uh, MPH school, we learned that Ukraine was especially um, afflicted by HIV rates, mm. especially in injection drug users. So like I said, one in five globally, but in the United States, about one in 10 new infections are from or in an injection drug user. One in 10. So about six to 8% of all of our infections are in injection drug users. Add about another couple, two or three percentage points for injection drug users and men who have sex with men as, as a lumped category. Together, they make about 10% uh, of our incident infections in this country. Now, there is one group, there is one minority group that is particularly affected in, in this uh, category, and that is American Indians and Alaska Natives. They are the number one contributor to HIV uh, positive diagnoses in the injection drug user category. Wow, that's really interesting. And that's really perfect. And, and I think I'm not sure if I, we got it captured a little earlier, but I was telling Paula that less than 1% uh, uptake in PrEP use in the last 12 months in the inject injectors. That's even with those who have commercial insurance. All right. So now you guys want to talk about PEP? What is PEP? How do we talk to our patients about when do you offer it? Where I see most of these patients uh, is in you know telehealth space and it's almost always monday right because 
over the weekend, something happened. That's the typical case. You know, there's always exceptions, but let's say that that's kind of the patient that we have, you know, working today with us. And so probably one of my first questions to determine what is their risk. And so you, you need to ask your patient, okay, what, what was the exposure? Was it an injection drug use or was it unprotected anal sex? Very different exposures, different risks to consider. Uh, so that's number one is kind of what is the risk? What did you do or what happened? And then also to assess when was the exposure? Because PEP medications are, are good if you initiate them no more than 72 hours after the exposure. Let's just take it from the top. Like what is the most risky exposure type? So receptive anal intercourse being number one, and then a needle sharing or needle uh, or injection equipment sharing drug use exposure would be number two. What are our PEP regimens? The preferred regimen probably for most everyone, adults and adolescents, including pregnant women, with normal kidney function is a three-drug regimen. So you get two knocked out with the Truvada, right? Tenofovir and Tricitabine with either raltegravir or dolutegravir. So Icentris or Tivocaine. I like dolutegravir just because it's once daily versus the raltegravir is twice daily. And then if they have impaired kidney function, there is a, a different regimen. So it's zidovudine, lamivudine, dose adjusted depending on someone's renal function with either Icentris or Tivocaine. Interesting. I didn't know this. Um, but it definitely kind of changed how I practice because I need to let patients know about it, is that Icentris and Tivocaine both can interact with the antacids and certain like, you know, metal ions and, and could prevent or decrease, I guess, the absorption and, and overall exposure to the medicine. So I think, you know, instructing patients to avoid antacids, laxatives, or any other products that contain those iron and calcium and aluminum types of supplements or products, you, you would want to avoid, you know, at least for the time that you're on PEP, which is generally a 28-day regimen. What I do when I prescribe it, I just do a full 30 days because these these uh, bottles, you would have to open them and take two okay. tablets out for a 28-day regimen, right? So just do 30. It, I think from a pharmacy standpoint, it makes it easier for patients because it's ultimately easier for the pharmacist. That's really good to that's know. That's just my experience. Okay, now that's great advice. Right for 30 days for the regimen. Yep. Because timing is key. Timing is this key. This is the thing. And this is, you know, what, what I've run into nearly always with PEP, especially with the population I typically work with, is access to this medication in a timely manner. Right. Especially when you said they may come to you on a Monday morning and the, and the occurrence happened on a Friday evening. And right. you're, so you're already up against a time crunch. You only have 12 hours or eight hours or whatever it is to get the medication approved. Right. And there are some pharmacies that, you know, I don't know if they just kind of keep a stock of like three-day starter packs, but sometimes I, I've heard of patients getting a three-day starter pack, but then, you know, having to jump through a lot of hoops to get the remainder. I guess at least they've got their first three days, I guess, but they better have the rest, you know. Now, there are certain manufacturer, you know, assistance programs for both PrEP and PEP, and, you know, depending on state, there may be state level funding, whether that be, you know, uh, a Medicaid type of enrollment, you know, for insurance, if someone is uninsured, or if, 
you know, your state has the program, say like California, there there is programming for early and rapid access to these medicines, both PrEP and PEP. The problem is the follow-up. It's almost, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've had really anybody that's followed up as prescribed because technically in terms of, in, in terms of labs, we, um, you want to check obviously baseline HIV status with antigen antibody, fourth generation, and probably the RNA viral load too. Hep B, Hep C, blood uh, syphilis serologies, and then urine, gonorrhea, chlamydia, creatinine, LFTs. Those are the baseline. And then the recommended you know, follow-up is about four to six weeks after for you to repeat labs, uh, make sure the patient's doing okay. And technically, the recommendation is to follow up at three and at six months post-exposure. But I feel... I feel quite good if I get the patient back at four to six weeks. <laughs> and yeah, so though, though the risk for HIV conversion, you know, I think is really at about two to three months, our tests are so good such that if, especially if you're repeating them and you're negative, uh, it's, it's really negative. I don't consider myself a, an expert on the ins and out of, of all the testing, especially as it relates to, you know, the window period. There, there is the chance, right, early infection, acute HIV infection, you could get an RNA viral load, but that viral load does go down and perhaps you can miss infection. Um, so that's, that's why it's always important, I think, to repeat tests and explain to your patients that that's just the nature of, of what we're doing here. I think being a little on top of it and more comprehensive is, I think, better than saying, ah, we'll just check your status next time. No, right? If you start somebody on PrEP or PEP with HIV, what have you, what have you opened the door to? Resistance, potentially. And, you know, ultimately, I think if someone does have HIV and they're on PrEP, resistance, harder to treat infections. Um, it's, it's not good. So I, I have new patients that'll come and say, Hey, I'm, I'm interested in prep. Can't you just prescribe it? <laughs> no, you need to do your labs first. Um, now if I have somebody that's on the medication and they're coming back for a follow-up and they don't have labs, do I not prescribe? I, I do continue to prescribe. I'll tell them, look, I'll give you a 30 day script, do your labs, and then you can get a three month script. So I do, you know, I want to make sure that the patients get the labs. Just making sure I understand your flow for treatment. You, anyone who presents for PrEP, not PEP, you draw those labs, wait for them to result before you have them start the medication. You're That's making right. absolutely sure that they're HIV negative, negative viral load. That is absolutely true. Yeah. And okay. in your visit, it's important, I think, to ask this question. In the last few weeks, have you had any flu-like symptoms? Because maybe they did have acute HIV and perhaps now they're in a, a window of where you're not going to detect it. Yes, I think it's important to, to make sure you're HIV negative before you start. Not the same for PEP. PEP, you know, the assumption would be you are HIV negative, you had an exposure, let's treat in, and do the, do the PEP, but also get your labs, of course. And if somebody came back already with an HIV positive status, I guess a couple of things to think about there would be repeat labs, possibly. And, and if it is indeed positive infection, connect them to care. Fair enough. Sounds good. Good, good strategy. Sound. Let's do, yeah, our initial lab. So you have someone coming yeah. in for our pre-exposure prophylaxis, so our prep. And 
also with like the hepatitis B status too. I don't know why that's on our family medicine boards and that's on our addiction boards. Why do they love that question so yeah, much? So I think there with hep B is that it's the danger is not starting prep and having HBV, hep B. The danger would be having hep B, taking prep, stopping prep, and then allowing the virus to reemerge. So if somebody is say let's let's say hep B immune whether from natural infection or or, or you know, vaccination then then you're okay right so so definitely you would check hep B status hep C status full kidney profile liver function tests of course HIV tests generally I think most places now are using you know a fourth generation antigen antibody test though right if if you suspect either acute infection or that your patient is is high risk and may not you know reflect positive uh, on antibody yet, then you know you could do do the viral load. Oh, and of course your 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 STD test right for uh, syphilis serologies, gonorrhea, chlamydia, perhaps a pregnancy test if if needed for Discovy. They do recommend tracking weight and LDL, so cholesterol profile. So though Discovy had a a much you know gentler profile from a, a bone loss perspective and kidney involvement, it did seem to have an effect on LDL and weight. Mm, that's good to know. That's good to know. That is good to know. So just, I, I would be interested, and I think our listeners would be interested to just know if you can navigate for us around some of the barriers, like why is it less than 1% that injection drug users are uh, offered prep and how can we do a better job basically you know what challenges yeah. and barriers can we be aware of and then what resources can we give do we have access to ourselves i know you have lots of them listed and darlene is going to put them in the show notes mm -hmm. but any resources as providers we can tap into there there's at least one study uh, in, out of baltimore somewhat recently that looked at kind of uh, awareness, knowledge of PrEP in injection drug users. I think overall the results were that about one in four, only one in four, knew of PrEP, but that most would take it. Now, I guess related, but but not the same, you know, people, uh, right? Patients, now we're talking about, about providers, is provider knowledge, provider willingness to prescribe. Mm, there's it's 2022, but there's still some significant amount of stigma around this all. And maybe providers sometimes are worried that, hey, if I prescribe PrEP, I'm just allowing the patient to do what he or she wants to do, whether that be sexual behavior or, you know, injection drug use. Which is ridiculous because yeah. if we really thought that, we wouldn't treat anybody for diabetes right. or hypertension or give them birth control. It's so so unfortunately, one of my one of my first prep visits, this is probably back in 2016, 2017, probably when this happened, it was a patient who was wanting to start prep. We did his labs, but he came back HIV positive. And so obviously you cannot do prep. And from that, you know, you look at it as a missed opportunity, right? Because we live in a resource rich country with all this good science, all these good medications that prevent infection, but we missed it. Some other things that I came across that are cited as barriers include, of course, like provider time crunch, but also the financial piece. So insurance coverage or lack of generic prep, about three dollars to $400 a year. That's way cheaper than I thought it would be. Now, right? It didn't yeah, used to it be. it didn't used to be. Right. Yeah. And then brand name for both... Um, Truvada and more so Discovy here, 
ranging from 12 to 17,000. And uh, injectable cabotegravir apertude over 22,000 a year. Prescribing it, it was always a discussion about, well, my insurance said no, it's really expensive. How do I get it? We worked with the manufacturer and people got it. But fast forward to now, and especially with the generic available, also the fact that USPSTF in like 2018 gave the grade A recommendation for HIV PrEP in high risk individuals, supposedly, you know, uh, insurance companies are supposed to cover grade A, grade B recommendations, preventive services, costplusdrugs.com, right? Mark Cuban from Shark Tank. This is his pharmacy. They okay. do generics. 90 day supply of Truvada is like $40, $45. No insurance. There are possibilities, you know, out there for someone getting fairly low cost, as we know, as it relates to medications for opioid addiction treatment, if even there's a, a small cost sharing for patients, some patients still may not get the medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. If you have no money, you have no money. doesn't exactly. matter if it's $10 or 1000 That's right. I mean, I get you've covered, I really appreciate that you've covered the barriers, you know, provider unwillingness or un incompetence, patient unawareness, but, but willingness. That I would end by saying this. Ending the HIV epidemic has really four components as listed in, in, from various sources, right? It's on the CDC website. It, you can probably find it from HHS. Ending HIV epidemic, four parts. Number one, test. Know your status. If you test and you're positive, we can diagnose you. If we diagnose you, we can treat you. We have a, an array of safe and effective medications that can help people achieve viral suppression, U equals U, and they can live happy, healthy lives and die from cardiovascular disease, right? Not HIV or AIDS. Test, treat, prevent, okay? Prevent, we have great prevention. PrEP, PEP, condoms, syringe exchange programs, treatment as prevention, okay? And then number four, respond. Respond to outbreaks. You know, over the pandemic, there were some outbreaks, it seems mostly in rural states. The CDC identified, I want to say like seven states with a, a rural population at risk in particular. And also that about, I think, 50 counties in the country account for something like a little more than half of all HIV diagnoses. And so responding to uh, outbreaks, if they incur, occur in an injection drug using population, Remember Indiana, Scott County, Indiana in 2015? Lessons learned, hopefully, for people. And by that, I mean people in leadership. So that's a four-pronged strategy, I think. But it requires us to do this. It requires us to talk about it, get the word out there, and prescribe it. Right, on those things. And, and I, can you refer us to one or two really good resources for clinicians yes. to go to in order to have help? Like, oh my goodness, I've got to get this person started today up-to-date or CDC, what would you recommend? I would recommend the UCSF hotline. University of California, San Francisco. It's Googleable, of course. Just type in UCSF hotline for PrEP or HIV. And they have a live, you know, staffing with physicians that will take your call, help you out on any sort of uh, hard case you might have. So I, I've used them before and corresponded with them. They are great. 
I would highly recommend that UCSF hotline. The same line that we've used for the hepatitis C we've talked about before. Yep. It is so great. I've used it for my hepatitis C patients. And you just put in, are you calling for hepatitis C or are you calling for HIV? And they'll just connect you with the right person. It's so great. And they, if you submit it online, I've had them call me back within an hour or two and can't say great enough things about them. Likewise, they've helped me out two or three times and I've had a pretty difficult case. Um, So yeah, UCSF hotline. And then another resource probably would be, you know, the the drug manufacturer website, as well as, you know, really anything from the CDC. I think the CDC has some good updated guides, especially for PrEP, especially for PEP. Um, So those are good resources too. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. We'll put those on um, the website for sure. Yes, they're they're really great. Thank you so much, David. That was so informative and I learned a lot. And thank you for letting us just pick your brain. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.